everyone and welcome to Risky Business's coverage of the OSSA 2011 conference. I'm Patrick Gray. These recordings have been made possible through the generous support of Microsoft. They are our sponsor on this one, so big thanks to them. And you're about to hear one of the highlights of OSSERT's annual conference, the speed debates. Not to be taken too seriously, the speed debate happens at the end of each con. Every year they do this. And it's a chance to have a laugh and uh, shed some lighter perspectives on the security discipline. I believe participants aren't even allowed to uh, pick which side uh, of an issue they're arguing for. Uh, the debates themselves are hosted by Australian broadcaster and journalist Adam Spencer, uh, who does a terrific job uh, of bringing the whole thing together. And I'll uh, drop you in here where Adam introduces the panel. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. And welcome to this session, the OzCert Speed Debate for 2011. My name is Adam Spencer and it is a thrill to be back for my third stint as host of the annual Speed Debate. I think the first such debate that I was involved in was in uh, 2008. It does seem so long ago, doesn't it? 2008, an age pre-Twitter, back when uh, the Onion Router was just another kitchen device you could buy whilst watching TV on the couch at 3am, a time when information, when my information was safe with PlayStation, or more importantly, at least I thought it was safe. Back in 2008, it was at this very conference that I attempted my first ever speed debate, and since then I have fallen in love with the concept. Today you will see nine amazing minds bombarding you with bravado, bombast, brilliance, and let's be honest, the occasional bit of BS, as we rip into the crucial issues of the day in the world of digital security. And the key to the amount of material that we will get through in this session is this. Every speaker today has a one-minute time limit in which to state their case. To be honest, I think it is fitting. In this brave new world where if you can't say it in 140 characters or less, it is just not worth saying, I find myself falling further and further in love with the speed debating format at home, in the workplace, in most of my day-to-day -day interactions. I'm now finding that if anyone goes over the one-minute mark, well, to be honest, they start to bore the crap out of me. I start thinking, dude, if it's taking you more than 60 seconds to get your point across, you must be up to something. And another sign of the times, gone are last year's handheld voting devices. Those clunky, unwieldy, mobile phone circa 1983 house bricks have been replaced by this. If you turn your attention towards the big screen now, you may have seen the web page, the conference application. We do have some bits of paper. We can get around to you if you don't know the address to download rather than read it out now because it's a little bit clunky. But all you do here is go to the conference icon. In conference, go to speed debate polls. And there you are. Now you see a list of questions there, the six questions, and then they are repeated down the bottom with where do you personally sit. That's for you to answer after this session on what you actually think is the truth. We'll just do the first six today and you are judging on what you have heard from the panel. They may well be able to convince you away from thoughts that you are very long held. You simply go for whether you're voting for the affirmative or the negative. We will put the results up once you have had a few seconds to vote. So without any further ado, let's meet our panel. First up, a professor of security engineering at Cambridge University. He pioneered peer-to-peer -peer systems, hardware tamper resistance and the economics of information security. Of course, he is the author of the best-selling textbook, Security Engineering, a guide to building dependable distributed systems. Now, I should point out, 
Just because something is a bestseller doesn't automatically mean that everyone will like it. Ross, I found this out last weekend when I presented a copy of the best-selling Security Engineering, a Guide to Building Dependable Distributed Systems to my wife for Mother's Day. <laughs> it's fair to say, Ross, she found it pretty heavy going, I'll be honest with you. Regardless, great to have him along. Please give Ross Anderson a big round of applause. Our next speaker is truly a man of mystery. He is an acting director of CERT. I point out, not a fully-fledged director, an acting director. He's recently returned from a year living and working in the United States, leading Microsoft Security Response Center's global CERT engagement. And his bio tells of a time when, quote, he and his team were on the front lines of the battle for cyberspace, working both in the light and in the shadows for the greater good. I asked him uh, before the session for more details. He calmly whispered into my ear, back off, Spencer. You're getting too close to the truth. So let's just welcome Carl Hanmore, ladies and gentlemen. Now, there are two ways that I could introduce our third speaker. I could detail his groundbreaking work discovering and disinfecting computer viruses, the formation of his world-famous lab, the fact that he is a laureate of the state prize of the Russian Federation. I could go on to explain how he's a man after my own heart. One of his hobbies during high school was to solve problems in published mathematical journals. And while still in high school, he attended extracurricular classes in physics and mathematics at no less than the Moscow Institute of Physics and technology. I could give you all of that sort of stuff, I could do the whole bio thing, but preferably I'd just like to... <laughs> I think I love that man. Eugene Kaspersky, ladies and gentlemen. Eugene, great to have you here. Now, it is one thing to talk the security talk. It's another thing to walk the security walk. Our next speaker, sure, he's IBM's security solution leader for Asia Pacific. Sure, he's held leadership roles at a development level, both here in Australia and in the United States. But what really impressed me was that when I went onto the website for this conference, this guy was the only one whose bio didn't have a photo. This guy is so obsessed with security and protecting his identity. Not only does he not trust hackers, he doesn't even trust you guys. That is impressive. Maximum respect, Glenn Gooding, ladies and gentlemen. Many of you know our next speaker, now at the Centre for Internet Safety at the University of Canberra. He is an internationally respected authority on cybercrime, formerly with the Australian Police. Of course, it's well known that some of his methods during his time with the Federal Police did cause some of the bureaucrats upstairs trouble. He was renowned for not following standard procedures when it came to busting crime. I'm sure you're all aware of the incident when the chief hauled him into his office and said, you're a renegade, McGibbon, a loose cannon. You can't just go around torturing people to get information. After what happened today, I should take your badge. To which our next speaker replied, well, boss, you can shove your badge before storming out of the office. I might have confused him with Clint Eastwood, in fact, in Dirty Harry. But regardless, please welcome Alastair McGibbon. Now, our next speaker is perfectly suited to the speed debating format. You might be impressed by his track record as Chief Security Officer for a certain fearless Netherlands-based ISP or his technology architecture work for Telstra. In fact, if you attended last year's speed debate, you might remember him as the guy who demanded a bottle of wine before he would speak. This year, he's changed his request slightly. 
Your mojito, Mr McIntyre. He's gone and got all fancy since he got married, but for me, his most impressive recent achievement, he actually stood second in line for over seven hours out front of the Melbourne Apple store to get his beloved iPad 2. If you're looking for geek cred, he's got it in spades. Scott McIntyre, ladies and gentlemen. Our next speaker... Retired from the US Army in 2001 following a 20-year career and was subsequently appointed by the President to serve in the White House Office of Cyberspace Security. He holds degrees in civil engineering, computer science and science and technology commercialisation. He is currently pursuing a PhD in public policy at George Mason University. Reading his CV reminds me of that most famous Australian saying... Pull your head in, son. No one likes an overachiever. Anyway, <laughs> please welcome Verizon's Vice President for National Security Policy, Mark Sachs. I was very excited to meet our next speaker. His talk at this year's conference on multiple concurrent detection as the way to overcome zero-day malware described us as living in, quote, a world where government incident response team members responsible for finding bad juju on their networks, are fighting a seriously uphill battle against advanced and well-funded adversaries. Now, for those of you unaware of what juju is, it is, quote, an object used as a fetish, a charm, or an amulet in West Africa, and the supernatural powers ascribed to such objects. Eddie, anyone who can be talking zero-day malware and end up invoking the fetishistic beliefs of West African tribesmen. I don't know what you're smoking, but I want some of it. From that witness, ladies and gentlemen, Eddie Schwartz. And our final panellist we'll hear from today, he helps Microsoft share what it knows about security with governments and private companies. When it comes to catchy conference presentation titles, surely his examination of the attacks on the Falun Gong, entitled Crouching PowerPoint, Hidden Trojan is one of the best going around. Please welcome Martin Van Hottenbeck. So this is what we do here, ladies and gentlemen. If you're not familiar with the idea, over the next 50 minutes we'll have not one, not two, but six different debate topics. I'll announce the topic. We'll run through the six speakers who have exactly one minute each to state their case, just in case you're sitting there thinking, wow, just as well I'm not under that sort of time pressure myself. You are because you've then got 10 seconds at the end of the debate to lodge your vote for which side you believed won the debate. Now, one writing instruction I've given to all the speakers, and I want to stress for you, this is rock and roll debating. The speakers have been encouraged to be as provocative as possible. In recruiting the speakers, we specifically chose people who were willing to put an argument here as far removed from sitting on the fence as possible, it's not necessarily what they strongly believe. If you hear something you like, roar uproariously. If someone really manages to rile you, boo like it's a pantomime. But if one of our speakers, in the spirit of provocation, really drops a controversy bomb, maybe check with them before tweeting or posting on your blog, this is Microsoft's official position on... <laughs> X, Y, Z. Do we understand, people? OK, let's go. Our first topic today, our first topic today, uh, concerns Facebook. Now, Facebook is a little social networky thingy. You might have heard of it. The Queensland police certainly have. Facebook 
is the benchmark for good security. We'll hear from Mark, Eddie and Eugene on the affirmative, Ross, Glenn and Carl on the negative. So to lead off that Facebook is the benchmark for good security, Mark Sachs. Absolutely. Facebook is a reflection of society. We are full of sewage in society, therefore Facebook can be full of sewage. And it's a perfect security model. If you don't like it, you don't have to be on it. If you do like it, you can add your friends, you can post your pictures, you can, you can tweet yourself to death, whatever. But Facebook is what you make of it, and it's as secure as you like to make it, and I think it is a perfect model of security, as we, society, have made Facebook today. It has made us. Thank you very much, Mark. <laughs> I love your idea of 60 seconds, too. That's fantastic. Okay, our next speaker to lead off the negative today, Ross Anderson. Facebook's entire business model is built on deception. You are not Facebook's customers. You are Facebook's product. Facebook makes its money... Facebook makes its money by selling your information to the advertisers. So their interests lie in deceiving you into giving up as much information as possible by creating the pretense that you're in a small, warm circle of friends and not making salient to you the hundreds of thousands of advertisers who can snoop on absolutely everything that you do. If this is the future, well, hey, the planet's going in a rather strange direction. Okay, thank you very much, Ross Anderson. This is Speed Debating Pub. You get the idea. Next up, to take up the cudgels for the affirmative, Eddie Schwartz. All yours, Eddie. Thank you. First of all, I want to say that uh, Ross has more Facebook friends than I do. <laughs> and uh, all of you that were cheering the negative are all on Facebook because I've seen you all there. So don't bullshit anybody. <laughs> so first of all, the use of the Internet is personal responsibility. So you've got to get over that and stop you know, fooling around here. Posting of deeply personal information for everybody to see. I mean, that's stupid. If that's what you're doing, get over that too. Facebook has evolved to be one of the most robust person-to-person -person content management systems in the entire world, and that's good security in my mind. It's an open platform with relatively few security problems considering what it is, 100,000 developers and over 500 million users. Who else can do that? And frankly, it's created an amazing standard for federated identity management, including OAuth and other types of user based, consent-based approach. Who else has done that? Come up here and tell me. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Eddie Schwartz throwing down the gauntlet. Our next speaker to take up the cudgels for the negative, Glenn Gooding. Adam, you mentioned that uh, I didn't have a, a photo for you to uh, download. That was on Facebook, but uh, it got lost this morning with some, uh, some work that was being done by somebody else before the cops come along and took them away. Um, 100,000 developers, where was, uh, I, I, somebody said that just before, um, the tools that are used, OAuth, how strong is OAuth, you know, the 100,000 developers out there utilising that technology um, had to wait for the standards bodies to turn around and uh, come out with an OAuth too, and they still haven't implemented that, so, um, you know, it is far from being secure, um, poor implementation practices, uh, passwords in the clear, you know, the, the list could go on about how insecure, um, you know, Facebook is throw in uh, malware capabilities, antiviruses, and all of that sort of garbage that gets thrown through there um, to keep my wife and, uh, and my daughter protected. I, I think they really need to step up their game because just recently I saw some, uh, some pretty nasty words coming through on, the, on that stuff. So, yeah, definitely not a secure place. Thank you very much, Glenn Gooding, for the negative. Our final speaker for the affirmative on the topic that Facebook is the benchmark for good security, 
Eugene Kaspersky. Uh, the Facebook is uh, innovation, uh, and this innovation is used by humans, and it uses humans. And humans are humans, so we behave in the same way with almost the same results. So everyone here in the room knows the right answer. You need just to replace Facebook with uh, any other innovation which was invented by humans, like fire, uh, wheel, horse, car, <laughs> internet, uh, Australia. <laughs> Is Australia the benchmark for a good security? You know the answer, yes and no. Thank you very much, Eugene Kaspersky. I knew the Russians were impressive. I didn't know they invented the horse. Regardless, <laughs> let's move on to our final speaker. To finish off our first debate, Carl Hanmore. All right. Is the microphone on? Yep. Yep, you're good there, Carl. Fire away. So, yeah, we'll pass, 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 the, pass the next microphone along, Carl. That's not working just at the moment. All right. Is that? Aha. Uh -huh, there we there go. go. Okay. I've got through now 15 seconds. That's uh, good. I don't have to now cover so much material. Benchmarks are public. Facebook security, not necessarily so much. I don't know about you. I thought some insights from B-Sides on the weekend may question that it is the bastion of all security for us. Um, I think that the notion that you are Facebook's product is pretty important. You should now take away from this that at least you have some value in the universe. But I also know that none of you are secure, and if you're not secure and you're Facebook's product, well then Facebook can't be secure by extension. And I suppose the last thing I would uh, like to do is reflect on Marcus's point. Um, he kept on uh, stressing that things were full of sewage, so Marcus is full of... Great ideas. Okay, thank you very much, Carl. Ladies and gentlemen, you've got 10 seconds on your handheld devices to post your vote. Are you customers or products? Are you small and warm or snooped upon? How many friends do you have? Do you use Facebook or does Facebook use you? I'll give you a few extra seconds for this first voting method. I know you're not particularly a technologically literate crowd. Okay, let's wrap it up there. Final votes are in. Let's have a look at the big screen. Oh, I like that. I could get very used to that. The result in debate one is... Uh, it's been won by the negative. Posting almost three quarters of the 107 votes polled. Congratulations, Ross, Glenn and Carl. Our second topic that ISPs need mandatory regulation to prevent the privacy of their users' internet traffic. There are the teams as assembled to lead us off his first speech for the afternoon, so give him a big round of applause, Alastair McGibbon. Oh, come now. <laughs> this should be more than that. Uh, look, uh, absolutely, we need to make sure that people that provide internet services to Australian businesses and homes and, and indeed to the government themselves respect the privacy of the communications that go across those networks. Not only do they need to respect the privacy of the content of the communication but of the details of the people that subscribe to those services. Having said that, we need to make sure that there is lawful right to access, that that access is regulated uh, and that it can be recorded as it is through other ways uh, when it comes to telecommunications information. The, the essence of the argument here is that 
the internet is now an essential service, just as offline essential services are uh, and have been regulated uh, since they were essential services, the same, needs, the same level of regulation needs to be applied to ISPs. And so uh, we need to make sure that there is regulation there as opposed to it, what we're left with at the moment uh, with loose privacy requirements in Australia where industry themselves actually fight against such things. So thank, thank you, you, Mr Chair. Thank you very much, Alastair McGimmon, first speaker for the affirmative there. Give him a round of applause. We haven't heard from Martin Van Horenbeck yet. I'll get you to lead off with a negative. Take it away, please, Martin. Thank you very much. Uh, what I would like to, you all of you to do is just close your eyes for a second and think back to when you were a little, little child. You were playing in the garden, the water was just flowing in the little river next door, and at a certain point in time you want to do something really nasty. You want to throw tomatoes from the, from the plant against the house or something. And your parents tell you not to do it. What do you all do? You do it, but you do it in a sneaky way. Regulation has never really helped anyone in this respect. What happens when you regulate something is stuff moves down the pipe to places where only people like Scott and Carl would find it anymore. But the people that actually want to do the sneaky stuff actually don't have that many issues finding it anymore. So regulation, probably not, it won't help. Let's all peacefully sign a voluntary agreement of what we agree on and what we think is appropriate on the internet. Thank you very much, Martin. We're barely into the second debate. I can't wait to see where this pipe analogy goes. Eugene Kaspersky, if you'd like to speak in favour of this motion, please. Eugene. The uh, Chancellor, do you expect from the man who works for more than 20 years with IT security and which has a military background? <laughs> Definitely yes. And I'm talking about government regulation for years. Uh, actually, I believe that we have to have a more government level regulation, uh, standards, and penalties. And, uh, we have, and we have to think about that on the international level. Well, in Australia, in New Zealand, you are far, far, far away from the rest of the world. You are somewhere in the cloud. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so you, you can do it there, you Australian, in your Australian way. Uh, but the rest of the world is uh, much more integrated in each other. So I am talking about Internet and I'm talking about ISPs. So, of course, yes, yes, and yes. Thank you very much, Eugene Kaspersky. Our second speaker for the AN Negative, Carl Hanmore. What are your thoughts? Uh, my, microphone my microphone is working. You're good. You're busy trying to kill another 10 seconds of my time. Fantastic. So, uh, regulation. Well, uh, has anyone had the opportunity, other than Eugene, with working with uh, organised crime? Anyone? <laughs> <laughs> That wasn't meant to come out like that. <laughs> he and a number of us understand the criminal actors out there. They're the threat to your privacy. Last time I checked, they don't follow the laws or regulation. So, like many organisations, the bad guys, your threat, don't follow the regulations. Mandatory regulation is the topic we're talking about. Is there such a thing as an optional regulation? Well, this sort of is, and that's called a voluntary code of conduct. We've actually got those things in this country, and, and that allows industry to actually... Uh, the I have drunk the Kool-Aid. That lets industry take control of their own problems, and that's a responsible thing to do. Scott, I'm sure, will uh, find this a struggle, because he's a responsible guy, and he knows that regulation isn't the way to get him to behave correctly. OK, thank you very much, Carl. I'm loving this. The guy who works, the guy who works for the Australian government 
has accused the guy from Russia for having links with organised crime, and it's the guy from the federal police sitting in between them. This is going to end up really nice. The final speaker in favour of this motion, Scotty McIntyre. Uh, that's me. And for the first time, I'm actually a sober and not suffering under jet lag, so I have no promises to what I'm about talking about, although I'm working on the sobriety right now. Um, first of all, I, believe it or not, I'm actually in favor of this. It's about bloody time. For too long, we've had government regulations and requirements to intercept traffic, to make it less private, to take away your sense of security as consumers. So finally, some regulations to keep the cops out of our bloody business, I'm fully in favor of. Never mind this whole, you know, legitimate access stuff. We'll, we'll let us decide that. It's our data, all right? So I think that it's really interesting what Martin was saying as well. Great giving us the insight into his fetish with water sports, but that's another issue. And he's trying to say that, you know, the whole issue of, of my going down to the dirty places on the Internet. Thankfully, due to the lack of these types of regulations, I just intercepted your stream, looked at your bookmark list, and looked at all these places. So I think that this type of legislation can actually help people considerably take back some of that privacy, give you some peace of mind, some security. And if it doesn't come out of government, it won't happen at all. Okay, thank you very much, Scott McIntyre, our final speaker in the debate. <laughs> Opposing the topic, Eddie Schwartz. So, uh, hello, hello. Yep. Since uh, Martin started off with the close your eyes thing, I want you to all close your eyes again and imagine that uh, in, in the case of the affirmative people, you do have these regulations. Now open your eyes and you know where you are? You're not in Australia, you're in China, okay? Because what you've created here is the Great Wall of China in Australia instead. The ISPs can't do what Scott was saying earlier. They can't monitor traffic the way you want. They can't ensure your privacy. They can't do anything. They can't even secure their own networks properly. So how are they going to do what they want to do here? Uh, if, if it, all you're doing is adding complexity to entity-to-entity -entity relationships, it should be the responsibility of individuals and companies to figure this out. Don't kill internet freedom. Don't kill innovation. Keep the internet open and let companies and individuals figure all this shit out. Okay, give our six speakers a round of applause. I will ask you, please don't close your eyes as you attempt to vote. That could just go horribly wrong. Fire up your pages now. Agree or disagree with our six speakers. You've got ten seconds. Okay, the votes are in. Let's see. It's been won by the negative a little bit closer that time, but congratulations to the negative squeaking home over the affirmative. Two from two debates going towards the negative. So far, our third topic for discussion today, that PKI has failed... I must admit, I misread it when it was first sent to me. I thought it was the PKs file. We we're going to get sued by a chewing gum manufacturer. It's all good. Ross Anderson, are you ready to lead us off that PKI has failed? Take it away, Ross. Thanks. A um, couple of uh, months ago, I went to Financial Cryptography, where there was a panel discussion uh, on SSL, in particular on the role of CAs. Now, that morning, I had just upgraded Firefox, and I noticed something interesting, so I put this as a question to the guy from the Mozilla Foundation. I said, why is it that you put back a certificate that I removed from an outfit which is, in effect, a front for the Turkish secret police? 
you know, what's your job in seeing to it that they can wiretap my communications? When are you going to remove this? And he said, uh, 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 how can we remove it? We've got an open process. How am I to decide to remove it? Um, at that point, a Turkish gentleman in the audience stood up and vigorously defended the, the honor of his country. Tubitak is not a secret police organization. It is a research organization. And the Mozilla guy just turned around and said, you see, it's difficult. Right? This is the foundation on which PKI has been built. It's built on sand. Thank you very much, Ross. We've had, we've had organised crime, we've had the Turkish secret police, we've had Facebook, we've had all the major players so far. Who would like to oppose this motion? First, Glenn Gooding, why don't you lead off for the negative on this topic? Jeez, you put me under pressure there. Mm. I was not ready for this. Fire away, Glenn. Um, PKI, if I turn the clock back uh, 12, 13 years ago, a, uh, a, an email program came out at uh, a large organisation, uh, you know, once purchased and then... Um, built around um, software collaboration databases on top of, um, and, and it was a great hiding spot for a really good underlying PKI infrastructure. And that was you know, well over 10, 12 years ago. Now, as we take that and as we move along, okay, there is no way that PKI has failed. Might have been a little slow back then, might have been a little bit more difficult. And if we look at all of those other pieces that you brought up there, Adam, if we throw the Australian government in there, our taxation organisation, certain projects that have happened, um, you know, you will start to see that PKI has definitely not failed. Um, it's well and truly uh, entrenched in what we do on the internet and in business, and um, you all should be voting for the negative on this one. I'm, uh, I'm strongly uh, in favour of this one. Thank you very much, Glenn Gooding. The second speaker for the affirmative, Alistair McGibbon, your thoughts on this topic? Oh, thank you, Mr Chair. Uh, firstly, you stole my uh, chewing gum. Uh, Apologies. Point, which was going to take up at least half of what I was going to say. No problem. So I'm going to let that clock run down for a little while. Okay. No, look, seriously, uh, everything breaks, right? The reality is everything breaks. And so there's no reason why PKI doesn't fun. break. Well, it does because we have human beings involved. And, and the, the simple fact with this is that we have human beings involved, and even if we have some type of uh, clear, or sorry, non-clear communication to my computer, we can still attack at the end anyway. So we over-rely upon the concept of uh, uh, securing communications between two endpoints and forget about the endpoint themselves. And we might secure the endpoint, but then we forget that someone can read what's on the screen. And so what it creates is a false sense of security. It creates a false sense of security, which means that the end user themselves often fails to understand that they can lose their information. And we see that happen time and time and time again, even on supposedly secure networks. It will fail and will continue to fail. Thank you very much, Alistair McGibbon. That's his case for why PKI has failed. <laughs> to argue against it, Martin Van Horenbeek. What have you got for us, Martin? Saying PKI is dead is saying billabongs do not exist. And will all of you stand for that? I do not think so. Mm. PKI right now is protecting all of your email. It is protecting at least very many of you's uh, communications online. And if you look at it, PKI has never died. PKI makes it possible to make certain trust decisions. And what is happening is that PKI in certain cases has fairly lax default configurations. For instance, 
the trust configuration, as in who you trust to issue particular certificates, that's actually something you as administrators can help decide on. The goal is that the vendors such as Mozilla, such as Microsoft, make available a default trust decision that works for most people. And if you have particular scenarios, for example, your company, where you do not want, let's say, um, a government from another country to prescribe who works in your organization, then that is up to you to decide. And PKI, PKI is the force that gives you that power. Thank you very much, Martin. Well said. I was surprised that no one had mentioned billabongs up until this point of the debate, Martin. Nice research, good local material. That'll stand you in good stead. To close off the debate in favour of the topic, take it away, Carl Hanmore. All right, then my microphone's working straight away. Okay, if we look at PKI, hands up in the audience. Anyone who is an expert on PKI? Two, three, four. We've got a room full of security experts and no one gets what the hell it is. Have we heard of anything with fraudulent signing? I think we have. That'd be the fault of PKI. My colleague, Mr Van Horenbeck, mentioned that PKI has died. Well, actually, the topic's about PKI having failed. PKI being used to invalidly sign something is a clear failure of the system. These things fail. Uh, if PKI hadn't failed, why would we still have symmetric crypto? I seem to remember I read this big book called Applied Cryptography, bored me to sleep for about three years of my life. It told me PKI was going to fix everything, and it hasn't happened. It's not everywhere. We still have symmetric key crypto. PKI is not the solution. Men in the middle, in your browser, in your company right now, your management could be reading all your traffic thanks to PKI. You will never know. They've put that root certificate in there and you have no visibility. So other than the use of the SSL in your internet banking, PKI has no use and even there, the bad guys still win. Thank you very much, Carl Hanmore. If PKI hadn't failed, why do we still have symmetric key cryptography? So true, I've actually got that tattooed on my back. <laughs> Scott McIntyre, round off this debate for us, please, sir. Right, so at the very beginning, Adam, you said that there were nine great, or sorry, amazing minds here. Clearly there's only eight and someone from government. Sorry, Carl. <laughs> now, <laughs> I, I would like to say that I am obviously completely against this. This, this is crazy. PKI is in so many things that we do, so many things that we touch. The problem has been implementation. Let's go back to what Ross said. It's built on sand. Perhaps there are people, as Carl has rightly pointed out, where implementation has failed. So I would say let's turn the heat on that glass, on that sand up. Let's make glass. Let's make it work. Let's make it transparent. Let's try to understand so that we all can become the experts on PKI that we have to be. Um, there are people that are using it in incredibly innovative ways, ways of increasing mobility, putting on an e-token on your iPad, or your iPhone or your, I don't know if uh, anybody uses the Zoom, but let's pretend that they do or, or the thing from Palm or whatever. Um, and, and, and they have a PKI certificate on there. They can work anywhere. This is good for business. This is good for people. This is good for choice. It allows you to secure the data and know who is accessing it with which credentials much more clearly and easily and traceably than any other technology out there. PKI hasn't failed. Thank you very much, Scott McIntyre. I'm going to give you 15 seconds to lodge your vote, during which time I'm going to subtly walk over and ask the panel, what the fuck is PKI? Vote away. We've had 107 and 109 people, I think, vote in the first two topics. Let's see how many people cast their vote. You go to the conference page. You should be on the speed debate topics. Plug away now. And three... Two, one. Let's reveal our results. The topic was the PKI has failed.
Oh, the negative up quite convincingly in that one. Hmm. Three topics. The negatives won all three. You're not just a typically like a really negative group of people, are you? It's being decided on its merits. Okay. Here we go. Topic four. The compliance and regulation promote good security. We'll hear from Ross, Carl, Glenn on the affirmative. Martin, Eddie, and uh, sorry, Marcus, Eddie, and Martin on the negative. Compliance and regulation promote good security. Take it away, Ross Anderson. One of the interesting things that's happened in America in the last couple of years is that with the spread of security breach disclosure laws, all of a sudden that's changing the entire security market. Before, if you got hacked, well, that was your customer's fault. They ended up um, carrying the burden of that. But now, at the very least, you end up having to write to them, telling them that you screwed up. And this is real costs. If you've got 10 million customers and it costs you $20 to write to each of them, that's $200 million. That, in turn, becomes a risk that your auditors insist that you insure. And so all of a sudden, we're seeing the long-awaited boom in cyber risk insurance. And this, in turn, is meaning um, that the insurance company's assessors will start asking pointed questions. And that, in turn, is starting to align incentives in a way that we just didn't have 10 years ago. So in this particular sense, compliance and regulation occurring through breach disclosure laws, yeah, I believe this is having a really strong positive effect in our industry. Brings it in in 59.2 seconds. That's Ross's thoughts. To lead off the negative, Mark Sachs, why do you disagree with this topic? Oh, absolutely. This is, this is insane. Regulatory and legislative and these types of approaches, you know there's only two people that profit from that, and it's the lawyers and the criminals. Do the criminals really care if you're compliant? Do they read your audits? Do they even look at this stuff? No, they just break right in, they slice right in, they don't care. If we build a regulatory or a compliance-type model, all it does is cost money. The same people who are trying to fill out these forms, trying to be compliant, are the ones who would be making the organization secure. We don't have that much brain power. We need to think about how we apply the smarts that we have towards making ourselves more secure, not filling out stupid little forms that we have to mail in each year and makes us compliant on the day that the auditing team came down because the criminals come in the next day after that and they don't care about what's on your compliance. This is the stick, folks. We need a carrot, not the other way around. We don't need to punish the companies that are being broken into. They are victims here. We need to be helping them. We need to be working with them, motivating, incenting, helping them to get towards security, not beating them with compliance and regulatory measures. Okay, thank you very much, Mark Sachs. Now, look, one of the things that we do have with the speed debating format, of course, you guys are hearing a lot more speeches and being asked to do a lot more applauding than you normally would in a standard debate. So don't be shy here. These guys are putting out some really interesting ideas. Let's give all our speakers a big round of applause at this stage. They've been going great guns. And to keep it rolling on, Carl Hanmore. What have you got to say on this topic, Carl? Oh, I've got a half a page of notes, which I'm hoping to stretch your full 60 seconds. Excellent. So, compliance. I think compliance is great. What it does is it brings clue to the clueless. Anyone worked on a help desk before? Everybody hate those people without clue. Brings clue to the clueless. It also kills script kiddies, sort of those people like Scott. It takes them right out of it, so you can only focus on the real, dedicated hackers. If you look at regulation, well, you, first of all, you should notice that the earlier topic I was arguing against regulation, now I'm for it. Oh, well, I'm a little bit confused. You must be a lawyer. I am not. Um, but I'm sure there's one here. Uh, regulation actually brings the people's will to the marketplace. That's what regulation yeah, is. The yeah, government yeah. is the 
mechanism of a people's yeah, the will, and therefore they do what yeah, Marcus needs help. the government to do. Uh, he's been so close in bed with government for so many years, he doesn't know who he's sleeping with anymore. And I suppose <laughs> but the. It's not uh, with you. <laughs> And I suppose the last thing is just bear in mind that promoting security doesn't mean you have to solve all of the problems. Okay, thank you very much, Carl Hanmore. I'm also getting to know a little bit more about the audience as this progresses. There's one guy here, fourth row back there on the right with the black shirt, who's both worked at a help desk and is an expert in KPI. I'm learning more about you with each debate, with each show of hands. He's two from two so far. Eddie Schwartz, what do you think on this topic, Eddie? So I have to say that... Uh Bringing clues to the clueless, to me, I mean, basically what we're saying is we're building a culture of idiots. I mean, uh, you know, what we've done is we've reduced the skills of security people to a checkbox mentality. Instead of focusing people on building better technical skills and new ideas and new intelligence, we're saying lower the IQ of this whole security world and, and, and getting them to do things like uh, compliance. We've basically incentivized bad behaviors, created a security 101 approach to doing things, telling us we can have vendors out there who can turn the key, make everything okay, and then go back to checking checklists. I think what we need to do is focus on the new, new ideas, getting into new things in IT, developing new intelligence, focusing on security operations, advanced threats, the things that are really biting companies in the ass. I mean, figuring out how to uh, do patch management a little better. Let IT figure that shit out. What security people should be doing is figuring out new things, new ideas. Thank you very much, Eddie Schwartz. He's, he's given three speeches. He's dropped the S-bomb three times. I like his work. Glenn Gooding, final speech for the affirmative. What are your thoughts, Glenn? Lowering the IQ of people. Let's um, you know, listen to that one a little bit, uh, or, or look at that one a little bit more deeper. Um, I, I think um, you know, what we've got to do here from a compliance point of view is um, look at how um, you know, our governments, and we've had some government speakers here that have spoken on both sides, um, I, I think in order to promote good security, um, the point was made before that um, you know, it's, it's not going to solve the problem, but it's going to be a great first step to, um, to getting along there. Um, you know, with disclosures uh, laws happening elsewhere in the world, as soon as those disclosure laws make their way down to uh, to Australian soil, we can begin to start putting better um, you know better frameworks in place, better regulations in place, uh, and in turn will promote a uh, a better source of security for all of us. So um, you know, we'll be all better and safer in the long run. Thank you very much, Glenn. And to close off the negative argument, Martin Van Horenbeek. So I have a small confession to make. In a long ago past, I was actually an auditor. So I actually have some experience in this matter, unlike the other people uh, in the debate right now. And today, when I look for a solution to a security problem, I not only put aside my Zoom, I take out my Windows phone and I bing it. But that having been said, that having been said... That having been said, um, security, or actually regulation leads to compliance, but compliance is not security. When you look today at reporting on data breaches, you read quite a lot of the time, they were probably not certified according to one or the other standard, whether it's PCI or whether it's Coca-Cola certified drinker. It doesn't really matter. But uh, you read about them probably not uh, being compliant to any of these standards. The fact of the matter is that these standards set a baseline across an industry. An individual risk to your organization may differ from other organizations in the same business. And you're the only one who can really assess the risk and make a decision there, not a standard. Thank you very much, Martin Van Hornenbeek. I love that when Martin started with a bit of I have a confession to make. 
Welcome to AA, Auditors Anonymous. I love it, Martin. Well done. You've got 10 seconds to post your votes on this topic. Compliance and regulation promote good security. We had Ross Carl and Glenn arguing in favour. Mark, Eddie and Martin arguing in the negative. The negatives won three debates in a row so far. Can they keep this string going? Admittedly, it's a different negative team each time. Okay. Wrap it up. Has the power of positive thinking won out? Carl, we'll find out now. Oh, the affirmative have scraped home. Congratulations to the affirmative. A very narrow margin, but they have got up. The feeling of the room is that compliance and regulation do promote good security. Our second last topic, that securing the internet is now a national security and defence issue. To take it away, Alastair McGibbon. Uh, thank you. Well, it just is, isn't it? I mean... <laughs> there you go. Thank you very much, Alastair. I'm not sure. My clock hasn't even started, uh, Mr Chair, so I thought I'd just throw that in. Look, it's also nice to see you voting for an affirmative one, so I think we can continue here. Look, the reality is, as we all know, this is critical infrastructure, essential services running across these networks. It is, it is a national security issue, but that does not necessarily mean that it's a defence and intelligence issue. The last thing we need is the Defence Department getting its fingers into this stuff anymore, okay? Nor is it intelligence agency. This is a civilian police matter, and we need to make sure that civilian police... I know that might sound a little bit like I'm helping the old guys out, but the reality is this. This is about civilian police responding to threats that have a national security implication. And it's important for us to recognise that this is so essential to us, and that's why conferences like this exist, uh, but it's not IT security people that are going to investigate it. It's not private firms that are going to investigate it. It's going to be the police that investigate it. And it is national security in its implications when it fails. Thanks. Therefore, more funding to police and more powers to police. I'm sure you'll all agree with that. Thanks. Thank you very much, Alistair. You've certainly secured one vote there. The other, the other 138 might be a problem. But anyway, over to you, Mark. What would you like to say I'll on this topic? i tell you what, this is not 1984, my friend. It is not a police state. The internet is not a national security problem, it's an economic security problem. We need to build this thing for prosperity, for trade, for openness, for societies to talk to each other, not for militaries to have conflict or nations to spy on each other or manipulate and change the networks for their benefit. That's totally wrong. Cyberspace is built by mankind. It's not a natural phenomenon. It's not like the land, sea, or the air around us. We built it, we can change it. The question is, do we want cyberspace to be a, a, a realm of war fighting, or do we want it to be a realm of open, open economic prosperity? So I would argue it is a matter of economic security, not national or defense or certainly police state security. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. They're firing up on topic five. I'm loving it. Martin Van Hottenbeek, your thoughts on this topic? Well, so just to clarify one little thing, the national security issue actually doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the government. And being from a country that hasn't had a government in 328 days, I think I can safely say that. Um, however, it is important because the nation is still also the economic power. And uh, as a country, if your networks are being flooded with Scott Botnet, then you really want to make sure that you have the ability to still see what's happening underneath all of that 
cloudiness. Now that Scott is uh, here in Australia, of course he has a lot of bandwidth at his disposal. So all of the little people that do not have that bandwidth but are actually after your real economic prowess and your real economic skills, you want to be able to detect them. So you need to find a way to actually do that. And that is why it is, in the end, a national security issue. Okay, thank you very much, Martin. Let's hear from the man with the botnet himself, Scott McIntyre, your thoughts. So my former life, I'm actually a psychologist in training, and clearly there's some clinically insane people on the panel today, and I can say that professionally, but not on behalf of Telstra. Um, so <laughs> it, 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 just really simple. If you vote for this, you're voting for taxes. You're voting to give more money out of your pocket into these guys, right? Who's going to pay for this? The Internet has never cared about nations. It doesn't. Its success hinges upon the fact that it is for everyone. It is by everyone. What we want is actually, as my learned colleague said, this is um, talking about economic powers. And the power isn't with a nation. The power is with people like PayPal. People who, and I'm not sure how this is going to play out, but uh, what's that new thing? Uh, Bitcoin or so? Um, there's a lot of amazing economic prowess that is developing on the internet that can only do so because this isn't about national security. It isn't about bringing it in, protecting it, and taking money out of your hard-earned salaries right, to pay for it. So remember, if you actually vote for this, you're giving more money over carbon tax to the government. And right now, there's enough of that. (laughs) (laughs) To round out the argument for the affirmative, Eugene Kaspersky. Uh, Just a few incidents uh, which were caused by IT faults. Blackout in the United States and Canada in 2003. Uh, east coast of United States and Canada. Uh, internet blackout in Estonia 2007. Uh, Spanish plane crash in Madrid in 2008. Uh, Stuxnet. But I disagree that internet security is a national issue. That's international issue. Mm, okay, nice little spin on the topic. Thank you very much, Eugene. Wrapping up the affirmative there, final speaker for the negative, Ross Anderson. Well, if we give this game over to the spooks, there's a particular problem of perverse incentives that we all saw back in the days of the crypto wars. Those of us who have been around in this field for more than a decade will remember those. Suppose you're the director of the NSA and one of your scientists comes to you and says, General, sir, I've got this wonderful new exploit. You know, it's a format string vulnerability. Type in the following 11 characters and you own any Windows machine. Are you going to tell Microsoft and get it fixed and protect 300 million Americans? Or are you going to keep it quiet so you can exploit 400 million Europeans and 1,000 million Chinese and so on and so forth? Well, the answer is obvious, isn't it? And given that if the, poly- if, if, if the Chinese hack the White House land, they'll keep quiet about it. And if you get to hack their Politburo, you can brag about it to the president. It's even more of a no-brainer. There is a structural incentive, in short, for military and defense establishments to emphasize offense at the expense of defense. And this is why this has to be kept a civil matter rather than becoming a national intelligence and defense issue. Okay, thank you very much, Ross. Some pretty impressive and heavy concepts dealt with in that one. Get your votes in now. You've got 15 seconds. Is securing the Internet now a national or international security and defense issue? Alastair, Martin and Eugene say yes. Mark, Scott and Ross say no.
Okay. The votes are in. On topic five, securing the internet, a national security and defence issue. Let's have a look. Oh, one convincingly by the negative. One of our bigger margins of the afternoon. Okay, this brings us down now to the final topic. May I have a very short comment? Yes. Thanks to everyone who said no. I will become even more rich man. <laughs> yes, I know who's paying for drinks at the bar after this session. Okay. Our final topic, the website owners should be financially liable for damage caused by hosting malicious code. This is the final debate we'll have this afternoon. To kick it off, for the affirmative, Ross Anderson. Well, if I go to a restaurant and I end up um, getting salmonella poisoning and miss a plane by a couple of days and so on and so forth, then I expect to be able to send them the bill. If I get similar damage, um, personal injury, uh, loss of property as a result of a hacked website, I expect the same. Now, the curious thing is that in Europe this is already the law, although most software uh, firms uh, and experts don't know it. The product liability directive means that if somebody causes you um, personal injury or damage as a person as opposed to a business, you can sue. So this is something that I think is going to come to pass just as soon as we get a few cases. It's just fair and reasonable. You can't expect, now that everything is going online, that laws and rules and so on will suddenly magically change just because people put disclaimers on their software. No, this is one in which cyberspace is going to reflect what already happens in meat space. Okay, thank you very much, Ross Anderson, who I'll notice has brought it in on the stroke of 60 seconds every time. Remarkable precision. Ross, Scott McIntyre, take up the cudgels for the last time for the negative. I've timed this mojito perfectly. Just say it. It's a skill. Right. So, obviously, I'm against this because we're nowhere near ready for this type of issue. There's no way that the average business who's looking for a turnkey solution is going to be ready to implement something that puts them in a financially liable position. The software industry isn't there. The security industry hasn't made it that easy for them yet. And the products aren't there. We want to encourage the economic growth of businesses and corporations. Right now, going back to the food analogy, there are strong food health safety laws. And that's part of why, if poor Ross gets out Manella poisoning or something else, he has a leg to stand on. Unfortunately, we don't actually have software health laws yet. Not everywhere. Maybe we need to do that first. If we're going to be starting to cast blame over who is going to be fined or who's going to have to have the legal liability, let's look at things like browsers. Let's look at software makers. Look at operating system makers. Let's look at the things that don't affect the small business person, the consumer, the end user, the guy who just wants to run a website. Indeed, I personally think that Microsoft should be fined a huge amount for IE6. Agree? Thank you very much, Scott. Controversial till the end. Alistair McGibbon, your thoughts on this final topic? Well, it's time to break the cycle of buck passing that exists in this space. Bring us back to the real world that we have when we walk down the supermarket aisle and for several months we can't buy Kraft peanut butter because one jar might have something that could harm a child in it. Apart from the whole freaking jar, which I'm sure could harm us from eating it. But the reality is... We take strict liability, and the companies not only take the strict liability, but they understand the damage it does to their brand when things fail. And somehow online we live in a fairyland that says we're different to what the rest of society is because everyone wants a, everyone wants a turnkey solution that will do everything. 
and no one will accept responsibility for it. This is not how we have advanced as human beings. We've advanced as human beings because of reliability and predictability and safety in an innovative world. What we bring in the IT space is innovation, there's no doubt, but innovation without responsibility, and that is bad. That is bad for all of us, and it's bad for the industry in the long run. And I want to be able to buy Eater peanut butter or Kraft peanut butter, but not at the expense of my safety. Thank you very much, Alistair McGibbon. Eddie Schwartz, what are your thoughts on this final topic? Should website owners be financially liable for damage caused by hosting malicious code? No, they should not. First of all, websites are not toasters. So uh, what, what applies it to nor peanut butter? So what applies there doesn't really apply here. First of all, what is a website? It's not one static thing with one page. Uh, think of any complex website. You've got potentially scores and scores, hundreds of providers providing content, automated engines, algorithms, all kinds of things providing information. It's a big, complex thing. Now, you're the owner of the root site. How do you provide visibility into the security of all of that content coming at you. you can't, we can't even do that in third-party assessments today. How are we going to do that on a complex website if you're the owner of the site? We need processes for vetting software, for vetting dynamic content, for creating trust. Those processes don't exist today. So there's so many moving parts out there. I think we do need to get there, but this issue is premature right now. So I'm going in the negative on this for now. Thank you very much, Eddie Schwartz. The final time we'll hear from you this afternoon, Eugene Kaspersky. Uh, well, uh, if you want to stop cybercrime, we have to do many things. Uh, it's about government regulation, cyber police, international cyber police forces, uh, IT companies, IT technologies, etc., etc., including their responsibility for the having malicious code on the websites. This is just one thing we have to do from the list of things. Uh, it's like a if you have a poison in your kitchen and your guest uh, is eaten by your guest by mistake, who is responsible? Same with uh, internet poison on the web pages. Uh, so I think, yes, there have to be some kind of responsibility and penalties for the providers which, plan their, which allow bad guys to plan the bad, bad code on the internet resources. But I don't, really, I don't really understand why it's so important here in this room because, well, Australians, they don't write viruses. And, and second, second reason, <laughs> you have, I don't care about that in Australia because bad guys, cyber criminals, they want to have very good connection to infected websites. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Eugene. Our final speaker on our final topic, Mark Sachs. Ladies and gentlemen, I appeal to you, please, with all due respect to my comrades who are on the affirmative of this, this is not a police state. These are victims we're talking about, these website owners. They are trying to do the best they can. It's the criminals that are breaking into these sites. It's the criminals that need to be held reliable or responsible for it. Just like if you pick up a cold or the flu or some kind of bacterial disease, do we lock you up? And hold you responsible. Oh, SARS. Yeah, right. Yeah, we're going to lock you up for your SARS that you're carrying around. We have got to have the ability to innovate. We've got to have the ability to make mistakes. We don't live in 1984. Let the website owners do what they need to do. If you want to hold somebody responsible, 
Those who write the operating systems that might be somewhat buggy could be the first that we might want to look at, but not the poor schmuck who's just trying to run a storefront and trying to, to sell a few good wares for you online. Please, I appeal to your common senses. Vote with your inner negative heart when your voting comes up. Thank you very much, Marcus. It's our final big question of the day. Is the internet just a giant jar of craft peanut butter? Is a website really a toaster? Does Alastair McGibbon have SARS? It's over to you, ladies and gentlemen. Your final vote of the afternoon. This will also affect which of our speakers have been most and least successful of our panel of nine this afternoon. I'll give those results moments after we confirm the result in this last debate. The topic was website owners should be financially liable for damage caused by hosting malicious code. Take it away. It's been won by the affirmative. Oh, the pain, the pain. Okay, give me two seconds whilst I just quickly total up the success rates of each of our speakers. It's very, very revealing. It's made slightly more difficult by the fact that not everyone did the same number of debates, but I have here. There was not a single person who did not win a debate today. That is fantastic. um, However, I'm not suggesting in any sense that anyone has lost today, but certain people have objectively won less than others have won. Four people tied on a 25% success rate. Please give them a big... So between the four of you, you add up to 100%. Well done. Hello, ladies. Give them a big round of applause. Mark Sachs, Eddie Schwartz, Eugene Kaspersky and Alastair McGibbon. Next, we had two speakers on 50%. Again, between the two of them, they agree to disagree that they were correct. Scott McIntyre and Martin Van Horenbeek. Well done to you both. Then on 75%, much maligned, but coming through three times out of four. Congratulations, Carl Hanmore. Which brings us down to our final two speakers. Successful 80% of the time, and he did go in five debates, winning four of them. Ross Anderson. Congratulations, Ross. And successful in every debate in which he participated, though strictly he only did go in three on 100%, Glenn Gooding. Well done, Glenn. Please, a big round of applause to all of our speakers. It's a very challenging format. They've done a fantastic job. 